Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. Today's reading is taken from Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 16 to 32. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would open up our eyes in wonder. We thank you, Lord, that we see the greatest wonder in the cross of Christ. And so as we consider it this, together this morning, we pray that you would enlarge, you would widen our grasp of it. And we pray this for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, it's lovely to have you with us as ever. I wonder whether you have ever been in a situation where you realized everything was not as it at first seemed to be. I've put together a couple of images this morning, courtesy, as is so often the case, of the vast treasure troves of trivia at boardpanda.com. What do you see on this one, for example? Do you see a foamy eye? Or do you see the reality, which is a draining sink? How about this one? An owl in a teacup? Or do you see the reality? A couple of hula hoops dissolved in Coca-Cola. What about this one? A child collecting a waterfall in a cup. 
or a play on depth perspective. This one, a levitating pedestrian or a cleverly placed oil stain on the pavement. Wonder what you saw. What do you see as you consider those images? Of course, in those kind of situations, it's all pretty trivial. But there may be situations where it is less so. How about this one? This one is one where you really want to work out whether or not this is a round-topped bridge or a ski jump that is going to send your car into the sea. And this one, this two-tone wall here, could have drivers doing themselves some serious injury as what looks like a ramp suddenly turns into a large piece of upright concrete. Well, as the story of Jesus' final moments nears its close, as the hours pass and the cast increases, more and more, the author, Mark, seems to be saying things are not as they seem. Jesus is mockingly crowned just as his kingly mission comes to a head. His temple predictions are ridiculed even as he shows himself to be the temple. The teachers of the law taunt him about saving himself even when he is just about to save humankind. And the whole picture, a scene that looks like the sad downfall of another religious zealot to begin with, is in fact a model, a model of the best life anyone has ever lived. And I'm praying that this morning in our short time together, we would be drawn more into that it's not what it looks like kind of kingdom that Jesus has. And through it, we'll see not only him more truly, but our lives too in his reflection. Just before we do that though, I do want to recognize that these moments of the crucifixion are not easy to read. If you've ever watched a film representation of it, like The Passion of Christ or something like that, you'll have a sense of how the physical reality of what happens is, is frankly overwhelming to contemplate. And this week, in particular, I guess, many of us will have been affected by the news of the tragic death of Sarah Everard, another innocent 33-year-old. Must we go through more of that, we might ask? How would we approach this topic of death? Well, without wanting to minimize the human realities here in Jesus' case, have you noticed how Mark seems scarcely to get drawn into them? Verse 24, I always find, is one of the most extraordinary verses in the whole Bible. It begins, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. It's four words in English, three words in Greek. The moment that the whole of the scriptures have been leading up to, and that's it. That's all the detail we get about the process of crucifixion. And as if to rub it in, Mark then goes into much more detail there afterwards, explaining the arrangement for the soldiers as they, as they made a distribution of these clothes. That, it turns out, is a fulfillment of prophecy, which Mark is particularly interested in. So it's not just the facts of the crucifixion that this man Mark so desperately wants us to understand. It was the meaning the world, the, 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 the eternity changing meaning of these events that are writ large over every interaction that's recorded in this Gospel of Mark. That is the thing that he wants us to focus on. And it is extraordinary good news. Extraordinary good news that it was not as it seemed. It was not as it seemed, first of all, because here 
was a king. Here was the king. Don't know what you made of uh, Harry and Meghan's interview with uh, Oprah Winfrey. I, I guess uh, there will have been different uh, uh, takes on that in this church family. It surfaced the question, certainly, uh, what do we expect of a royal? Now, I hesitate to touch uh, upon the subject. Um, I, I read an opinion piece this week that uh, the whole affair was apparently primed to exacerbate the divisions in our society, tradition versus innovation, establishment versus individual, young versus old, and so forth. But, but there are some things I'm guessing we can all agree on. I'm guessing whatever the precise royal status of the Sussexes now is, there is something that didn't surprise anyone. No one was surprised to see the couple sitting there well-dressed on, on plush chairs in idyllic surroundings. No, we weren't surprised because wealth, honor, comfort, a significant following, those are normal things that pertain to royalty. And so it always was, even in Jesus' day. But not here with Jesus. Here, captive, alone, apparently defeated, to all eyes, was surely just a criminal. Mark's gospel says the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. That must have been hundreds of men. And together these military men decided to make a joke of the kingly delusions of Jesus. Verse 17, they put a purple robe on him, purple being the color of royalty. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him. Hail, King of the Jews. That was the title they'd heard bandied about. And again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. Of course he wasn't a king, they thought. He'd claimed to be a king. They couldn't be a king. And what a kind of a king would end up like this? And so they made fun of him. But actually, their mock coronation told more truth than they knew. Here was the king of the Jews. Here was the long-promised Messiah, the descendant of David, whose ministry had fulfilled all the prophecies. The sign that would go above his head was right. And here was God's king, the one whom the disciples had heard God call out from heaven, this is my son, listen to him. The one they'd seen show amazing divine power. This was a king, and though you could see no medals on his chest, this was a king too, like all the great kings of history, who had been waging a great war. Over three miraculous years, he had shown his power over evil, over sin, over death, and he was about to add the greatest victory of all to his name. It's just that that victory wasn't the kind of sword-swiping, cavalry-charging victory that the soldiers were used to. In fact, it was a victory which the crown of thorns that they'd put on his head was the most eloquent, prophetic illustration of. Because Jesus' kingly moment, most kingly moment, would also be the moment of his greatest suffering and humiliation. Because it was on, in dying on the cross that he would conquer sin. I wonder whether you have seen that. I wonder whether you have seen that Jesus is the king, the king of all kings, the ruler of my life and yours. Of course, it's an enormous thing to believe. It's something you wouldn't want to just 
take on trust, you want to think about it, you want to have a concrete reason to believe it. And these verses alone, I would suggest, are not going to give you enough for that. If you've got questions about that, do join us again uh, on a Sunday, particularly in the coming ones, as we look at the resurrection to come. Or join us on our next course of exploring Christianity. (laughs) But you know, even unlikely as it is in this moment, as I look at the bigger picture, as I look at what happened before this in Jesus' life, and even more importantly, what comes afterwards, the best sense I can make of the facts is indeed that Jesus is king. Now, once you've worked out that truth in theory, there's a lifetime of learning what it means in practice. Learning, for example, that the question is not what might we give up for God, but what of all the things that God has given us are we going to keep for ourselves? Or believing deeply that our lives, the lives that we live, are not our own. These are not our days. They are not our things. They are not our moments. They are his because he is our king. And only in eternity will that truth finally fully land in our hearts and minds. And in eternity, we will all, always fall on our knees before King Jesus. It's funny to think actually, isn't it? In these verses, when the soldiers fell on their knees in mock homage, they were just rehearsing what they were going to do in eternity. Here was the king. But the second thing that was not all as it seemed was that here was a temple. Here was a temple. I realize that may sound a strange thing to say, but let's read on from verse 27. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Bit of background about the temple. Since time immemorial, we humans have strained at the idea of God and in particular that most difficult of questions, if God really is so divine, how could we somehow connect with him? And so up to today, civilizations have built temples, great places of grandeur where heaven seems to touch earth. Think of Angkor Wat, the Shwedagon Pagoda in Myanmar, the Golden Sikh Temple in Amritsar. These are places to meet God. And the Jews of Jesus' day too, they had their great second temple, as it was called. And here is a scale model of that, cited in the city today. Now, back to the text. These scoffers here, most likely of Jewish background rather than Roman, they remembered Jesus saying, I will destroy the temple and build it again in three days. It was not only an absurd thing to hear him say, it was also, frankly, quite offensive. That great temple that we just saw destroyed, the center of Jewish worship, the heart of Jewish identity, taken down by carpenter's son, it's laughable. And anyway, it hadn't happened, had it? The temple was still standing. Jesus was almost dead. At least they could rub this criminal's nose in his arrogance. But what they couldn't see is that the destruction of the temple is exactly 
what Jesus did achieve. Not that he dismantled it by brick, but he replaced it with a new way of encountering God. Jesus himself is the new temple. You can't get more immediate an encounter with God than meeting God in person. And that's what Jesus is, God on earth. And the authorities did destroy that temple. Jesus would be killed. And in three days, he would rebuild it. He rose again. And his death and resurrection would mark the end of all the temple's sacrificial system. Here is a temple. I wonder how you connect with God. Where are you inclined to turn to, to encounter him? What is your temple? Perhaps you're drawn to great religious buildings. And look, there's nothing wrong with a building whose architecture in some way expresses the God that is worshipped in it. But no building contains God. No building is needed to encounter him. In lockdown, we may be further from church on Normanton Road than ever, but but we're not any more distant than usual from God. We still have Jesus. Even when we're not gathered right here, and even when we are gathered right here, and God speed the day, if God is with us, he will be with us, not because he's in these stones around me or this building. He will be with us because he is with us through the spirit of Jesus. Here was a, here was the temple. King, temple. And thirdly, here was a savior. Here was a savior. And that, of course, was quite contrary to to appearances. Verse 31, in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. I was walking by the Thames uh, yesterday with the kids. And where we were in Ham, uh, the, the river there has almost burst its banks. And the kids were running the, the gauntlet, as you do in their wellies, of seeing how far they could wade out. And it suddenly occurred to me this could actually turn out rather badly. So I ordered everyone to retreat. And as I did so, I, I went through the, the mental what-ifs in my mind, and I was scouring the bank for, for one of those life rings. Now imagine a life ring that you throw into the water, and before anyone even grabs hold of it, it starts to sink. Well, that's not something you're going to hold out a lot of hope for in saving a person's life, is it? And so it was in the eyes of the teachers of the law with Jesus. He couldn't even save his own skin, let alone someone else's. But of course, things were not as they seem. There's a great play on words here. Save and heal are the same word in, in Greek. So Jesus had, as they said, demonstrably saved, i.e. healed, temporary healed, others. But the greatest part of his saving work, that of reconciling us to God forever, that was yet to happen. We'll believe you're the savior, they said, if you get yourself down. Well, in fact, it was precisely because Jesus has not shrunk from the cross that he is the savior we must believe in. It's because he's kept going towards this terrible destiny, knowing what was ahead, out of love for you and me. It's because he stayed on the cross, because he didn't get down, because he did not use his divine power to resist it. It's because of that that he is 
Savior. On the cross, right there, Jesus bore the punishment for our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By his wounds, you and I have been healed. Well, what are we to do with this? Well, it is, it is a truth that is beyond our imagining. And the answer is not to wallow in the wounds, but to sing hallelujahs for our healing. And then to make that healing our own, to be forgiven personally. And to do that, we need to do what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would not do. That is to see and believe. To see what the religious people of Jesus' day could not. And therefore to put our trust in Christ. Here was a saviour. Here was our saviour. King, temple, saviour. And finally, here was a model. Here was the model of how to live. There's one more really surprising dynamic that doesn't jump straight out of these verses, but it's so important for Mark. And I think it needs to be mentioned because if you've ever read Mark in one sitting, which by the way, I, I, I recommend, it, you can do it very quickly. Uh, the thing that you really notice is what happens right in the middle. Chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me. So what's going on at the cross is Jesus is demonstrating what it looks like to follow him. Now, if you'd asked the bystanders at Golgotha what they made of Jesus' death, you might have got a range of responses. Good riddance at one end to sad end for such a, a wonderful man at the other. But I doubt there were many people who would have said, that's how I want to live. And yet in God's economy, the cross-shaped life is a thing of great beauty and worth. Whenever I'm in this building, I'm always low-level aware of the list of names that are at the back of the church right there. There's a list at the back of the church on a panel of missionaries who went out mostly to East Africa and, and the Far East at times one every year. And... Uh, it was at a time, 100 years ago mostly, where just returning home alive was frankly doubtful. That's a cross-shaped life. Of course, a cross-shaped life doesn't require relocation at all. But for each of us, there is a, there is a path of self-denial that Jesus has called us to follow. I wonder what your path looks like. I hesitate to ask about this and challenge because I feel such a novice in this area. But I know that there are many of you following this way of Jesus, this cross-shaped way. Perhaps today you need to hear the encouragement. Perhaps you follow that way and today it feels really heavy. Well, let me say, keep going. Life is not as it seems. You are in fact following in the footsteps of the greatest life that was ever lived. Then again, perhaps for some of us, today is a day of challenge, a day to recognize we cannot know the Savior on the cross unless we are prepared to follow the model of the cross.
king, temple, savior, and model. As we think about those truths, the words of our final hymn capture so amazingly. Love so amazing, so divine, demands a cross-shaped life. My soul, my life, and my all. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week. Thank you.